It's a bit tricky, this passage we've just read, because we're starting in the middle of the story. Jesus has gone to his death bearing the full weight of evil that has infected and corrupted human life in the world. The whole story of the Bible. It's the story of how God is dealing with corruption and decay, violence and sorrow, sin and death. It's the story of how God is dealing with evil. And it reaches its climax with Jesus hanging on the cross like a salve sucking the poison out of the wound of the world. And then our passage this morning, an earthquake, an angel, guards stunned into death-like silence, and two very scared women. Resurrection. Jesus Christ rises from the dead. And in that moment, God has torn a hole in history. When it says in Matthew 28 verse 1 that the resurrection occurred at dawn. It's not that it was the dawn of just another day, another week in history. Easter morning was the dawn of creation. The start, the first day of new creation. Here is Jesus, really risen from the dead. Not a spirit, not a zombie, not a biter, but a real, physical, living, fully alive, fully physical Jesus. Except, his body is incorruptible. It's, it's physical like our bodies. He eats. They could touch him. They could grab his feet. But he's supra-physical. Here's a body that will not decay. I mean, so it's, it's following the laws, but it's somehow on these issues of decay and corruption and growing old, they no longer count. His body is not susceptible to disease. It doesn't break down. And that is the point of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 puts it this way. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, a, a euphemism for people who die. Then in verse 51 it says, "Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed. The dead will be raised imperishable." Raised, real physical bodies that will not perish. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put away immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Do you get it? It's because that at that moment, he will never, his body will never, death has nothing to do with him. He's incorruptible. He's imperishable. And we too will get, this is the point of the resurrection. The point is that those who follow Jesus will experience the same as Jesus. And not just people, but the whole creation. 
This is what we hear so beautifully and powerfully at the climax of Romans. The the main point of Romans comes in chapter 8, verse 20. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. It will obtain the freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from dying. You know, it seems like, doesn't it, in the summer, right about the time the the trees get at their best, what happens? They start to then lose their blooms and lose their leaves. It seems that right at the moment in life when you get at your peak, then suddenly um, decay sets in. (laughs) And gravity takes over. The creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is coming a day when God will do for his children and for his creation what he did for Jesus at Easter. That's the point of Easter. On the cross, Jesus defeated evil. Natural evil, moral evil, he defeated it. He just, he broke its power. He annulled it. And in his resurrection, God's new world is inaugurated. We get a glimpse of the first taste of it, the first fruits of it. His death and his resurrection, this is the foundation, the model, the guarantee for God's ultimate purpose. What is God's ultimate purpose? That all of creation... And all of his children, like his son, will be raised to a real physical life on this earth that is incorruptible. Where evil and where we can say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? God's purpose is to rid the world and us of evil altogether. And to establish life That is physical and real where there's eating and drinking and hugging and knowing one another. Real life where there is where there are communities of justice and beauty and peace. Now. That's the resurrection. Nowhere in any of the resurrection stories does it talk about going to heaven. It always is new life. It's always heaven coming to earth. This earth being healed. Now. The question I'd like for us to explore this morning is this. Okay. That's the point of the literature. That's the claim that Christianity is making. It's quite an audacious claim. These events that happened 2,000 years ago as guarantees, guarantees, it's like a surety, like a deposit. These guarantees of a a new creation one day at some unnamed point in the future. That's what the resurrection is about. The question I'd like to ask is, so what? What? What does that mean for us right now? How should we live at this moment in time? Here we are between the past victory of Christ over evil 2,000 years ago on the cross. In between that and the future world in which that victory will be fully implemented. 
How should we live? How should, how, how does the Bible encourage us to respond to the resurrection? And I want to say to you that we can respond, we should respond in three general ways. Faith, hope, and love. The reason this comes up throughout Paul the Apostle's letters is because as he looked at the cross and the resurrection, suddenly faith, hope, and love dominated his life. And I want to unpack for us this morning how faith, hope, and love are rooted in the cross and the resurrection. Let's start with faith. There is an instinct in our culture to define God as love in such a way that it means sin does not incite wrath. There's an instinct in our culture to say God is love. And somehow looking at God in that sense does not allow for God's wrath. We're told again and again today that we must be inclusive because Jesus welcomed all kinds of people just as they were. But there's a confusion around those terms in our culture. And the confusion is this. Forgiveness is not the same as tolerance. It is not the same. Forgiveness is not the same as inclusivity. It's not the same as indifference. It's, it, it's not, forgiveness doesn't mean that God doesn't take evil seriously. It's not the same as God saying, let's pretend your evil didn't really happen. Forgiveness is not like saying, oh, I don't really mind. It doesn't really matter what you did. You and I have sinned. There is a creator. What we have done matters. It is recorded. It is there. It matters. And the cross is why we can be forgiven. Not tolerated, not included, forgiven. See, forgiveness implies exclusion before embrace. When when I sin against Alan and Alan says, I forgive you, what he's done is he's first excluded me. He said, you did something that deserves my forgiveness. He has condemned me in my act against him. And then he embraces me in forgiveness. If you don't believe that forgiveness assumes exclusion, try to tell somebody you forgive them and they don't think they've actually done anything wrong to you. They won't like that statement. Forgive me? I'm the one that's forgiving you, your mama. (laughs) Because God poured his wrath over my evil and Josh's evil, Because God poured out the wrath that our evil incurred onto Jesus, onto his son. Because of that, we can be released from the burden of our guilt. The cross is in no way about inclusion and tolerance. It is about a far deeper work called forgiveness. 
The cross is the victory of God over evil, not the sweeping of evil under the rug. It is the full confrontation with evil. My evil and your evil and natural evil and all of the forces of corruption and decay in this world. How do we get in on that victory? How do we receive forgiveness out of the victory of the cross? Faith. Faith is the only way to get in on the victory of the cross. And so what is faith? Faith is looking with gratitude on Jesus' death and resurrection. Faith is, is resting all of your weight on the cross and the resurrection. On those events. Believing that the cross and the resurrection alone secure your forgiveness and your future glory. In Matthew 28, the angel says to the women, come and see the empty tomb. So I invite you, come and see for yourself what it means to live on the basis that of these events 2,000 years ago. To, to base your whole life on these events that something happened, which which was a full confrontation of your sin and all the evil of the world and all the bad things ever done and that it was dealt with in the hurricane of God's wrath and love. Jesus loves you and he gave himself up for you. The invitation of the cross and the resurrection is will you put your faith in him? In his cross and his resurrection. That is the only way that your sins, the ones other people know about and the ones no one knows about. That is the only way that your sins will be forgiven and your guilt will be removed and your future will be secured. And so the question is, will you have faith? That Jesus is God in the flesh, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. There is nothing more important. Now, if faith in Jesus and his, and, and his resurrection is something you don't have. I, I beg you, please, talk to me. There's plenty of people in this room who would love to talk to you about it. Children, if you do not have faith in Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, there's nothing more important. Look, if this is hard for you to wrap your mind around, if it's confusing, if you, if you don't understand it, if, if you don't like it, if, talk to somebody. Let's reason about it. Look, if, if you don't buy it, investigate it. If you don't trust it, Please, work this thing out. There is nothing, nothing more important. And nothing makes up for a lack of faith. No matter how often you go to church, no matter how good you are, goodness never makes up for evil. 
I mean, you, you try to commit evil against somebody you love, and then you try to make up for it in good. It just doesn't work. No, the only thing is the sheer audacious grace of God at the cross and the resurrection. That's what I mean by our need to respond in faith. Now, a second response we need to have is hope. Think about John Lennon's famous hymn to secularism. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. I agree. I could imagine that. But that's not a Christian move. You see, because of the cross and the resurrection, our calling as humans is to imagine there's no evil. That's not easy. I'm sorry. But what John Lennon was prescribing was far easier than what I'm prescribing. Try to imagine there's no evil. Over and over, the Bible invites us to imagine the new creation. The new creation that God will bring on that great day when he fully implements the victory of the cross. When he does to the whole world, to the tree outside your window and to your body if you believe. When he does to all of it what he did to Jesus in raising him from the dead. Imagine a world without evil, a beautiful, healing world, a community. Envisage a world vibrant with life and energy, incorruptible, beyond the reach of sin, of, of, of death, of decay. And try to hold that in your mind's eye. A, a world that has been reborn, cities that have been reborn where there is no corruption. Where, where we are free to be, to be truly what we were made to be. Where creation itself is set free to be what it was made to be. I have no idea how that works on a physics level. I can't imagine that. I mean, try to wrap your mind around a cosmos that is not expanding until it plays itself out. Now, that is what the Bible means by hope. That is hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is not a generic term for wishful thinking. It is certainty, conviction, confidence in that image that I've just tried to put in your mind. Now, this is hard to do. Imagining a world without evil is no easy feat. And the reason it's hard for us is because our imaginations have been shrunken and starved by the long winter of secularism. Now, fortunately, God has given us two very powerful tools to awaken and enliven our imaginations so that they can be pointed in the right direction called hope. First, the first tool that God gives us is the Bible. The whole Bible is filled with the story of of the creator God who loves the world he made. And he refuses to yield that world to corruption. He refuses to give up the fight to the evil that has invaded that world. 
It's, the Bible is filled with the stories and the promises of a world that is renewed from the top to the bottom. So that everything that's pure and lovely and beautiful and noble and just and wise. So that all of that shines more brightly than you could ever imagine. In the story of Jesus' resurrection and the mighty passages like Isaiah 52 and 65 and 66 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we're given a vision of the new creation. A world that resembles our world of space and time and matter in all sorts of ways. But it's far more glorious. It's full of new possibilities and new growth and new beauty. We need desperately to soak our imaginations in Scripture far more than you have ever done before. We've got to learn to read the Bible as a single, large, enormous story starting in creation and going to new creation. We've got to learn to read the Bible as an epic As this remarkable, audacious, mind-boggling vision that God started this thing and he's not ever going to give up on it. That he will bring heaven and earth together again forever. That's our first tool to reform our imaginations so that we can live out of the cross and resurrection with hope. So that when our loved ones die... We are not shattered. We are deeply broken. But we do not grieve like those without hope. All over the world, the church is advanced because of the way it responds to death. We live in a culture that has anesthetized death. That has stripped the new heavens and the new earth from the biblical story. And the church... Can no longer deal with death. Because of these issues. But the Bible is given to us. So that our hope. Reaches way beyond the grave. That's our first tool. The second tool the Bible has given us. That God has given us. To re-educate our imagination. Is art. Art. Look, the first thing we learn about God in, the, God in the Bible is what? In the beginning, God propositioned. In the beginning, God acted justly. What is the first characteristic of God in the Bible? Truth, goodness, justice, law, holiness? No. In the beginning, God what? Created. The first thing we learn about God in the Bible is he's an artist. He's a creator. That's the very first thing we're told about God. And what is the first thing we learn about humans? Out of all of creation, humans alone are made in the image of God. And what is the the thing you've just learned about God? Art, creation. What does it mean that we're created in the image of God? It means that he created creators. He created humans so that we would create beautiful things. And delight in them. Now the image of God means a lot. But it means certainly nothing less than that. Now the problem is we don't live in the Garden of Eden. 
This world we live in is broken. It's fallen. And art in our society has become fascinated with the ugliness of our world. So much of the art produced in our society right now is nothing more than a kind of brutalism under the guise of realism. We need artists who will open our eyes, not only to the ugliness, but also to what Tolkien called joy beyond the walls of the world. Surely now is a fresh window of opportunity For Christians with a deep biblical worldview to step in and to lead us beyond the sterility of contemporary art. Art at its best, it not only draws our attention to the way things are in their good but broken state. But art at its best, it draws our attention to the way things are meant to be. It educates our imagination. I'm talking about all art. I'm talking about painting and poetry and playwriting and music and song and dance. All the arts. This is one of the reasons God gave them to us. It's it's so that we could reflect the beauty of the creator. And so that we could be re-educated into the greater reality. We need artists who will rise up. And by God's grace, show us what life will be like when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like waters cover the sea. We need artists who will point the way forward for us to the new world that God will make. To the world that is already seen in advance in the resurrection of Jesus. To the world whose charter of freedom and glory and goodness and justice and beauty was won when Christ died on the cross. We need artists to help us believe in this because it's so hard to believe in this. We need artists who will help us to see something, a future that it will be more physical, more solid, more real, more Utterly amazing. We need artists who can be truthful. Not only about the brokenness. But also truthful about the reality toward which all of the beauty and all of the power in the present world are signposts. We need artists. We need you. We need more of you. Oh, that God would raise up artists. And it's a dark place to go into art in this point in time. But it's critical to us. Because Christian hope depends on art being transformed today. We need artists who will make Christian art. And I do not mean, in fact, make Christian art. What I mean is be a Christian Who makes art. One of the worst things that's happened to art in our society is the church recently. It's made a bunch of low grade art. Songs are measured if they're Christian based on JPM. The number of Jesus per minute in the song. (laughs) The church is filling our world with kitsch. We need no more of that. No, what we need are artists who are Christians That will work very hard to be Christian. And then try to paint or draw or write one true thing. Artists, can I encourage you? Don't make Christian art. 
seek Christ and try to say or create something true. Something that you put your heart in and get and then give that to the world. We need artists who can live between the victory achieved on the cross and the ultimate renewal of all things. But we've got to live here with our imaginations that are in such a poor state. We need the artists to be the vanguard of the army, delivering our imaginations into a deeper and wiser hope. A hope in the creator and a redeemer whose all-conquering love will, yes, absolutely, one day, make all things new. We need artists who can see beyond the stars and open our imaginations to a new creation in which all the darkness and the threats and the memories and the residue of evil no longer exist. We need writers who can write like Tolkien when at the end and all is lost. Surprise beyond surprise. Strider with his army of ghosts. And like that, the victory is won. We need that. We need the surprise of grace in art. Whether it's abstract art or realistic painting, we need it. So that's what I mean when I say we've got to respond to the cross and resurrection and hope. Now... A third and final response is love. As we're learning to imagine a world without evil, our job is then to go to work in this world, in love. Now, a great way to see how this works is to think back to the passage Mike Trainum read to us, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Here are four living creatures singing, Holy, 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 And the elders are casting down their crowns before the throne. But there's a problem. The one who sits on the throne, he holds a scroll written on the inside, the outside, sealed with seven seals. And no one can be found worthy to open it and to break its seals. God is not worthy. He's there. The angels are not worthy. They're there. What's the problem? The issue is the way to God's unfolding purposes is to put the world right again. But to complete this project of new creation, you get to Revelation 4 and it's blocked. Why is it blocked? Why can't God himself open the seals and open the door to new creation? It's blocked because God has made the world in such a way that from the beginning, the plan was that humans would steward the world. And there is no human capable. This is Revelation's statement of the problem of evil. God has a plan for the world. But unless he is to unmake creation, that plan is stuck. Because the design all along was that this world would be loved and stewarded into its glorious potential through the stewardship of God's image-bearing humans. So you get to Revelation 4 and it looks as though the plan cannot come to fruition because who among us is void of evil? But notice Revelation's statement of the answer. 
the lamb who was slain. The son of David. The son of man. Jesus, the Bible says, is the perfect image of the father. Where is the first time in the Bible we're introduced to this idea of image? Humans. Jesus comes as the fully human one. That's why he could go to the cross, rise from the dead. That's why the lamb that was slain, he is conquered. He's defeated the powers of evil. And now that lamb has ransomed people from every nation. In order what? Did you hear it when Mike got choked up? In order to do what? To rescue people from every nation in order so that they can float off in a Casper convention in the sky and just worship God in a get out of earth free card forever? No. In order that they can be a royal priesthood reigning on the earth. That's what it says. That's, the, that's why Romans 8 says creation is waiting for humans. That was God's plan all along, and he never changed it. This comes up time and time again in the New Testament. You see, the New Testament doesn't allow us to think that the cross and the resurrection have done the work. They've they've won the victory, so there's nothing more to do. No, no. No, the cross and the resurrection have won the victory. And as a result of the victory, there is now a redeemed humanity who can become God's wise agents of new creation. The church, the reason that we are here is not to wait until we die. We are here because we've been redeemed and we keep worshiping God and he fills us with the spirit and he empowers us and he forgives us of our sins so that we can forgive others of sin. And new creation breaks open in a relationship. He fills us with his spirit so that we can think deeply about our vocations, identify where they're broken, and then labor for politics and business and art and teaching and homemaking to be brought back in line with the grain of the universe. And in those moments, new creation breaks out. The angel in Matthew 28 invites the women to come and see, and then he invites them to go and tell. In love. We go out into the world and through our vocations and through our neighborliness and through our hospitality and through our daily lives, we work to make more bits of new creation spring up in this world. We embrace the forgiveness of God and now we can forgive others. We receive the love of God and now we can love others. We experience God's new work in our life and now we can work hard at gardening and teaching at engineering, and all the things that we do, your vocation, that is the moment in life where you rise up and you go out into the corner of the vineyard that God has assigned you to. Your vocation is your mission. Not merely to share the gospel. Not if you mean by that just to talk about forgiveness of sins. Yes, do that. But no, to work for the healing of your vocation. So that's... What the Bible is getting at with faith, hope, and love. They are not generic terms. They are terms rooted in historical events. The cross and the resurrection. Now to be a Christian is to rest all of your faith on Jesus. Believing that the cross and the resurrection alone secure your forgiveness and your future glory. The good news is that no matter how bad you've been. 
You are not doomed. Because evil is not ultimate. Evil is not the final word of human existence. Jesus Christ is. To be a Christian is to be filled with the hope that in the full outworking of the victory of the cross, God will implement the final victory over the forces of evil and chaos and death. He will prove once and for all that evil and corruption and decay and death and dying, that these are intruders into his good world. And by golly, he's not going to let them stay. He's not cashing in and moving off to recolonize and start out somewhere else. He will completely undo all of the evil. And to be a Christian is to become part of God's Easter gift to the world. To become an agent of God's new creation. To love this world. God's world. By serving him. And laying your life down for your neighbor. By the way, remember the earthquake? Doesn't it make sense? Easter is heralded with an earthquake. Why not? What else would you expect if the whole of creation is being remade? Let's pray.